Hey, ITT familia, it's Maria Hinojosa. And I'm Julio Varela. Dear listener, we're continuing our series sharing the best of In the Thick. And today's episode feels, well, really relevant to what's been happening recently. Mm. Now, of course, we know that February is Black History Month. What an injustice, the shortest month of the year. Seriously. But here on ITT, we're always celebrating our histories every day. Yeah. Now, this feels like a pretty special time, though, to share this particular episode, because if y'all have been following the news in recent weeks, you know that African-American studies have been under attack by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, hmm. as if he's some kind of professor or academic. Right. That's that's the thing. Anyway, you know that after Governor DeSantis blocked an advanced placement, an AP, African-American studies course, in the state of Florida, the college board actually went and announced changes to the curriculum for AP African-American studies, which would, believe it or not, exclude or make optional lessons involving Black Lives Matter, reparations, Black queer theory, and mass incarceration. I mean, WTF. Let me just say it. What the fuck? I know, seriously, like happy Black History Month. Mm -hmm. Come on. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if DeSantis wanted to abolish that, too. Oh, for sure. Like, you never know, right? But listen, in all seriousness, this Republican war on black history doesn't just target what students learn in school, but also who they can read. Mm -hmm. So prominent authors have been removed from the AP curriculum, including James Baldwin, Bell Hooks, Angela Davis, Alice Walker, and the list goes on and on. And that list can even include guests that we've had on ITT, like our dear Ibram X. Kendi, who we had on our show last year to discuss, drumroll, anti-racist scholarship. Exactly. Like, there you go. Which is why it makes sense that for today's Best of In the Thick episode, we're going back to our interview with Ibram X. Kendi, where he discussed his book, How to Raise an Anti-Racist. And no surprise here. This show is just as relevant now as it was last year. So here's the show from June 21st, 2022. Enjoy. We have to understand that if we don't share with our children a different narrative, a different story, what are they going to be told by the media? From Futuro Media and PRX, it's In the Thick, a podcast about politics, race, and culture. What's up, fam? I'm Maria Hinojosa. And I'm Julio Ricardo Varela. We are so excited. <sighs> Do you sense it in my voice? And mine too. Because it's a little bit higher than normal. <laughs> Boston's in the house. They're like, Maria, bring your tone down. But that's because <laughs> I'm so excited. Yep. Joining us from Boston, Massachusetts, is the Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, founding director of the Boston University Center for Anti-Racist Research, contributing writer at The Atlantic and author of the new book, How to Raise an Anti-Racist. Dr. Kendi, Ibram, my brother, it's so great to have you on the show. Oh, my sister, it's so great to be here. And hello, Julio. I'm so glad we can have this chat. Yeah, me too. Me too. So remember, everybody's still recording at home. So dogs, cats, birds, you know, cars, sirens, it, it could all happen. I had Boston accents outside. Whatever. Boston accents, right. <laughs> so Ibram, if it's okay if I call you Ibram, of course, genius. Yeah. <laughs> call him genius. No. <laughs> My partner, every time I do something that's a little <laughs> off, she's like, I thought you were a genius. <laughs> Ooh. 
Yeah. Yeah. So it's, yeah. My friends and family always get on me now. Yeah. I Remember, you. because yeah. you won a MacArthur Genius Award for your work, because you have dedicated your life, your career, your writing, your commitment to others, to family, to young people, to chronicling not only the history of anti Black racism, but also the ongoing anti racist resistance in the United States. And that means actively challenging and changing racist policies and belief systems, most fundamentally that racial disparities in this country are rooting in upholding white supremacy, right? Understanding that structurally and that racist policies create the racist ideas used to justify them, Mm -hmm. not the other way around. So you write, quote, like so many of us today, I had to learn as an adult what I could have learned as a child. I had to learn I wasn't the racial problem. I had to learn no racial group has more because they are more. No racial group has less because they are less, Hmm. end quote. Interesting, you know, Ibram, we don't use the word minority in any of Futuro Media's work ever. We never use the word minority because we never want to see ourselves as less. So while Black scholars have been studying these concepts for decades, the past few years have really, as you have known, and really been a leader, we've seen an explosion of interest in anti-racism, in active anti-racist policies, in being a participant in learning and practicing anti-racism. And a lot of it is driven by your genius work, okay? There's also the reality that your work was coinciding with the horror of the murder of George Floyd, with the uprisings, with the Black Lives Matter movement front and center on a national conversation. So talk to us a little bit about, you know, just the evolution of your own anti-racist scholarship and how essentially it became the center of your work in writing. Because, you know, people sometimes are like, well, I'll never be able to learn. I'll just, you know, I guess I just have to accept. And it's like, no, everybody's on a journey, including you, Ibram. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, and it has been quite the journey. I mean, I started out actually studying Black student activism and really student activism more broadly in the late 60s, early 1970s, where students of all races sort of came together and really tried to revolutionize a higher education and started Black studies and ethnic studies sort of programs and built organizations like the Third World Liberation Front at San Francisco State and Berkeley and, and, and challenged those campuses. And But I think one of the things that I realized in studying those students was those students in many ways were revolutionizing our conception of a racist idea because they, like in the late 60s, these students were arguing, you know what? All these disciplines, history, sociology, psychology, are racist. And we need something completely new, which they ultimately called ethnic studies. Mm. But in the late 60s, it was largely liberal scholars who were dominating many of these disciplines and teaching them in these classes. But it was those scholars who were saying that, you know, people of color don't have a culture, or they're living in a cycle of poverty, or the Black family, you know, is broken, or Black and brown people need to assimilate into white American culture. Or Black-on-Black violence, right? That term, Black-on-Black violence, like, what? Yes. And so they were saying to students that we disagree with those eugenicists who say that the races are genetically distinct 
and mm-hmm. certain races are biologically superior. But we do think y'all are actually culturally or behaviorally inferior. <laughs> right. It was like, <laughs> that was yeah. the thing, right? It's like, but you're still yeah. not good enough. You're not you're us. Still, you're, you're not, not us. us. You're not We're us. smarter. We're the one. We're going to open yeah. up a little bit of space to share with you because we're really in charge and in power and you're not us, but we're going to share with you. It's yeah. oh God. Yeah. Precisely. And it was a standardizing of whiteness. It was that, you know, European history is world history. Literature is the literature that white people have written. Studies were conducted on white people and it was imagined that everyone else could be interpreted based on those studies. So those students pushed back against that. And they were like, no, those ideas are racist too. And then by stating that those ideas are racist too, they were challenging really the consensus that the only racist ideas are notions of biological inherent racial hierarchy. And they were like, no, notions of cultural and behavioral racial hierarchy are racist too. And so that actually caused me to start thinking about writing what ultimately became Stamped from the Beginning, which was this narrative history, specifically of anti-Black racist ideas. And that's actually, you know, when I found that these ideas were coming out of the policies to justify them. But in writing that book, I was like, okay, I don't want to just write a history of racist ideas or anti-Black racist Mm. ideas. I also want to show that over the course of history, people were challenging these ideas. That, you know, because we like to say that people are products of their time as if Mm -hmm. nobody Mm -hmm. was challenging them in their Mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. You know, Ibram, can I say something to you? Of course, I'm a child of the late 1960s. Black Power and the Black Panthers were very present in my life. Then I started saying that The Black Lives Matter movement began the first day a Black person was brought in chains into the United States. And and is that correct then? That yes, the resistance was from that moment has always been present and it has always been a resistance to racism. Without question. I mean, and we have so much documented evidence of people resisting Mm. enslavement, people resisting racist ideas and policies in the 17th century. We have evidence of Native people resisting as soon as Columbus sort of imagined that he discovered something. So, yeah, I mean, the resistance, the anti-racist resistance, you know, has certainly always, you know, been here. And it was certainly there with those students, you know, in the late 60s. And I wanted to actually show that over the course of history, these racist ideas were constantly being challenged by anti-racist ideas. So I wrote this book. And ultimately, when I would go and speak about that book, I would urge people to adopt more anti-racist ideas. And people were like, what? What are you talking about? What do you mean anti-racist ideas? I I thought it's just Mm. not racist. And that's what then ultimately led me to write How to Be an Anti-Racist. And that book, engaging with people on that book, one of the things that was a consistent sort of point of feedback was people saying, okay, now I have a better understanding of how to begin to unlearn and correct and self-reflect mm-hmm. and begin to see all the racial groups as equals. But how do I do this with my children? Yeah, And I think that's what ultimately led me to write How to Raise an Anti-Racist. And we're going to talk about the book, the, How to Raise an Anti-Racist, but we would be remiss if we weren't talking about the moment we're witnessing in 2022. I mean, yeah. The grieving for this country's mass shootings, including the devastating massacres at a top supermarket in Buffalo and an elementary school in Uvalde, black and brown massacres within a week and a half, right? So in response to the 
Buffalo shooting in which 10 black shoppers were targeted and murdered by a white supremacist terrorist. You dedicated your column in The Atlantic to what you call the double terror of racist policy and racist violence. You wrote about how the victims of the top shooting had spent their lifetime surviving, resisting, and coping with racist policies and inequities in health, housing, and food access. Mm -hmm. This is Carol Horn, who's a community organizer and advocate in Buffalo, speaking to Democracy Now! about the terroristic nature of the Buffalo shooting and the police response. Let's take a listen. This is racist terrorism. Um, We have to call it what it is. We have to deal with the race issue. Uh, We have to deal with the hate issue. Um, We have it in the police department also. Um, Racism and, as far as I'm concerned, terrorism. Because we saw them, when I say them, I mean the Buffalo police, they arrested that um, the the racist terrorist with no problems whatsoever. But then you have black men mm-hmm. dying at the hands of the police and they have no weapon at all. So, Abram, how do we process not only these incidents of mass violence, but also these other systemic forms of white supremacist terror? I feel like that's all it feels right now the last couple of years and beyond. I mean, how do you, how do you get through this? So, I, well, let me just say, you know, obviously I think what, what happened in both New York and, and Texas to those mostly elderly people and obviously those children, those, you know, black and brown people, you know, as a writer, there are sometimes you just, you can't even sort of even begin to convey the pain, you know, and the mm-hmm. terror and, you know, those twin sort of mass shootings were that for me. And and I haven't been as active on social media just because I can't even like I can't even sort of even bring myself to to really speak to this. But one thing I would say specifically about the structure of racism itself is one of the ways we can understand it is through the actual policies through the ideas, and through the violence. Mm -hmm. And what happens is, you know, if you're a black and brown person, you're constantly fed these ideas that there's something wrong with you and people like you, which then causes you to imagine that the conditions in your communities are the result of what's wrong with, you know, your people, when in reality it's these larger sort of policies that are literally killing people. Mm-hmm. And but somehow, some way, if you're able to survive mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. all these sort of lethal policies mm-hmm. that lead to all sorts of health disparities, you know, black and brown people dying at the highest rates from COVID-19, you know, black and brown people being incarcerated at the highest levels, being deported at the highest mm-hmm. levels, mm-hmm. having, right. you know, low life mm-hmm. expectancy and on and on. If somehow, mm-hmm. some way you're able to survive mm-hmm. all of that, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. then coming around the corner is a white supremacist with an assault rifle mm-hmm. coming to kill you because he's imagined that that you're a replacer when chances are your ancestors were here before his. Yeah. And that he was able to buy 
the weapon legally. Yeah. That he was able to walk around with the weapon without being seen as a threat. Yeah. And that's part of the the systemic reality of it as well. Right. And the also systemic reality when you talk about Uvalde is, you know, rural Texas, you, you can throw a stone and you can you can like see law enforcement. And that's the other part of this, right? Even like in this over policing, quote unquote, protection, you're still seeing tragedy. And and I think one of the points that reporters and scholars have consistently made, particularly over the last few years with this really explosion of research and writings on the police, you know, is that you have all these resources dedicated to American policing. I saw one study that found that the cost of American policing is more than every other military in the world, except the U.S. and Chinese militaries. But still, they still have a low clearance Mm -hmm. rate for homicides. But still, when you have a mass shooting, (laughs) they're not there to save the lives of children. Mm -hmm. The thing is, is that it is so shocking, right? It is so, so profoundly, deeply shocking. And I think that everybody in the country is still at some level dealing with shock and trauma. And yet at the same time, so many people have been talking about if you have this kind of weaponry and you have this kind of racism and you have this kind of hate, especially if you are raised with this kind of hate, like the murder from Uvalde, right? Who also, I think, internalized a lot of hate uh, towards himself, right? All you hear about is, you know, how much you hate people who speak Spanish, how much you hate the immigrants, how much you hate Mexicans, how much you hate Latinos. At a certain point, you know, you internalize it, which is interesting because your new book, How to Raise an Anti-Racist, everybody needs to be reading this book because it's calling on parents, on teachers, on caregivers to protect children by, in fact, arming them with the tools that they need to resist and challenge the racial inequities, right? And prevent them from internalizing racist messaging, from realizing that they can, in fact, fight back, that there are tools so that you don't internalize racism. Mm -hmm. Now, the shooters in both Uvalde and in Buffalo were 18 years old. We know that white supremacists specifically target and recruit young white men who are disproportionately responsible for mass shootings. But young people have also been the leaders in the fight against racist policies, right? This is the thing that gives you and me and Julio so much hope, right? Because they lead the protest movements. They're organizing against the book bans. They're activists through and through. So we're going to listen now to Kelly Choi, who is an organizer for the March for Our Lives movement, which has been advocating for gun control since the shooting at the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in 2018 in Florida. So let's take a listen to Kelly Choi. My peers and I are frankly done. We voted these people into office on the belief that when they marched with us in 2018, they really were marching for our lives. Now more than ever, it's clear that they had been marching for themselves. Over 170,000 people have died due to gun violence since Parkland. And if all you can say to that is thoughts and prayers, you have failed every young person in America who made their voices heard four years ago. Mm. Every single person in Congress has a moral responsibility to pass the universal background check bill and their hesitance to do so is a slap in the face to the young people they kept saying gave them hope for the future. Well, now we're the present. We've always been the present and we're not afraid to give you hell until gun violence is ended. Mm, It's what's needed. I know that you're like, when you hear Kelly speaking, Ibram, that you're just like, okay, we kind of got this. 
But the question is, how do we raise our children to be anti-racist leaders in the face of this white supremacy, which is everywhere and so structurally around us? So how do we do it? Well, I think it's first important for us to to realize that our children, our young people, are the very group we're the least likely to actively engage directly and verbally about race and racism, even though they're the most vulnerable (laughs) to Mm. racist messages. And just as, you know, they're the most vulnerable to gun violence, right? But what are we doing to protect them? And and I, I think that there's so many different things. Of course, we as parents need to ensure that we are modeling anti-racist behavior because particularly for younger kids, the messages that they're receiving from their parents are largely nonverbal. And the nonverbal things that we're saying and doing are actually more influential than what we're saying. So if we're walking down the street and a brown man is approaching and we get scared, and we're with our child, we're speaking to our child. If our child sees, if we have, you know, a white parent and we have a white child, and the only people we invite over to our home as friends are white, our child is seeing something. Our, our child is seeing who we value. Yeah. If we're deciding yeah. to live in a particular neighborhood and send our kids to a particular school in which, you know, certain people are excluded, our child is seeing that. So I, I think first and foremost, Every decision that we make, even when we're not saying anything about race, we're actually saying quite a bit about race. And of course, in addition to that, we have to actively recognize that by three years old, our kids have an adult-like conception of race. So they understand race as a construct, and they're even beginning to attach darkness to negativity. By six or seven, especially eight years old, our kids are beginning to understand what a racist idea is. Mm -hmm. (laughs) By 11 Mm -hmm. or 12 years old, Mm -hmm. our kids are being able to understand racist discrimination. Mm -hmm. Teenagers, Black teenagers are, according to studies, reporting five instances of racist discrimination per day. As you stated earlier, Maria, the you know, white teenage males are being recruited pretty aggressively mm-hmm. by older white supremacists. So the question is, what are we doing as all of this is happening? From Futuro Media and PRX, Latino Rebels Radio is an award-winning OG Latino podcast covering stories of the Latino experience that matter in the United States, the Caribbean, Central America, South America, and even parts of the universe. Lo que sea. Created for, about, and by Latinos. Join us every Thursday by subscribing to Latino Rebels Radio wherever you get your podcasts. You got a responsibility, dear listener. Every single one of us, right? But it kind of gets to something that I know you're feeling. It's obvious that by advocating for anti-racism, this is a big structure, right? This has to take such a bigger effort because we know that throughout history, you said, you know, the anti-racist movement has always been met with a response, a backlash from racist forces. We're still living it, right? I mean, in children and anti-racist education have often been the focal point of that reaction. Fear-mongering, when people say so-called critical race theory in schools, and it's out there, right? People don't challenge that. The assumption is if you're not challenging it, it means you kind of believe some of it, right? And 
the same white supremacist rhetoric and conspiracies that the Buffalo shooter believes in have been echoed by conservative media, Republican politics. Yeah. Polls show that more than half of Republicans believe in critical aspects of the great replacement theory. And that's a conspiracy that immigrants and non-white people are being used to, quote, replace native-born white Americans. Yeah, yeah. And after the Buffalo shooting, Michael Harriet, who's been on the show with us, great guest, appeared on Zerlina Maxwell's show to unpack the long history of this kind of conspiracy. So let's take a listen. Yes. Uh, so when we look at history, we see like the greatest period of racial terrorism in American history, Reconstruction was sparked by this fear that, you know, in South Carolina, in Mississippi, in Louisiana, those were majority non-white states after, you know, uh, the 14th Amendment made freedmen and African-American citizens of the country. And that's what sparked the uh, violence of Reconstruction. So, you know, the nuance in this, although people have termed it as a conspiracy theory, the demographic changes in America are true, right? Like white people are going to be a minority in the next few years. That is, you know, a demographic inevitability. But the idea that there is a conspiracy by the leftists or the liberals or, you know, the Illuminati to uh, take <laughs> white people out of the majority Harriet. to introduce uh, immigrants and black people and to give them power. That is the conspiracy theory. And I think that we should acknowledge that there's kind of a nuanced difference between the two, but it's always been a fear since the beginning of America of a non-white majority taking over this country that they stole from the indigenous people of America, of course. I mean, you got called out your previous children's book, Anti-Racist Baby, right? By Senator Ted Cruz during the Katanji Brown Jackson Supreme Court hearings. And yeah. So, you know, it's coming, right? You poke the white supremacy and it's going to come back and it comes back in different forms, whether it's violent forms or whether it's, you know, forms in the media that are incredibly influential. So, Ibram, like, how can movements work through this to dismantle white supremacy and push forward anti-racist policy? Well, I mean, I, I think we have to create those movements and the way we create those movements that are offensive, meaning, you know, we're literally trying to construct a new type of society, trying to institute new types of sort of anti-racist policies. We're trying to ensure that people in positions of power, you know, are committed to equity and justice for all. We have to sort of support and build organizations that are pushing, obviously, anti-racist narratives that are allow people to recognize, you know, the solution of these structural changes. And I'm mentioning that because we are in a time of withering attacks against those of us who mm. are saying the radical idea, I guess, that the problem is indeed these bad policies and not these so-called bad people. But we can't spend our time consistently and constantly sort of battling yeah. and defending because we have to sort of focus on creating and constructing and, you know, and particularly... In this moment where there's just this incredible backlash against schooling, you know, and, and against telling the yeah. truth and against, you know, having black, brown and indigenous and gay and transgender and women writers and writing about anti-racism and feminism. And this is a moment in which we have to double down 
you know, on the work that we're doing, organizing around mm-hmm. it, particularly for our kids, because they are, again, the most vulnerable to these messages. And I don't think people realize, like, there are many parents and teachers who are like, you know, racist ideas or this is just too sophisticated yeah. Yeah. For, for young people to understand. Dark is ugly is a very simple idea <laughs> that a two-year-old can understand, mm-hmm. right? The idea that yeah. people who are not born in this country are bad people, that's a very simple idea that a four-year-old can mm-hmm. understand. Mm-hmm. So we have to understand yeah. that if we don't share with our children a different narrative, a different story, what are they going to be told by the media? Yeah. In fact, that's one of the things that you were saying in your book, which is like, so if they're not learning something, it's like they're not being taught anything, right? They're not getting this experience. And instead, that void is being filled by all of this horror and ridiculousness. And by the way, when my therapist asked me when I was doing, you know, some deep therapeutic work and she was like, what was the first trauma that you remember? Mm -hmm. And it had to do around the issue of racism and exclusion. It was because George Wallace was running for president. My best friend Mm -hmm. was Jewish. We were in a black community and we were like, where are we going to hide if George Wallace becomes president? So this -hmm. was when I was six years old. And you understood it. And there was no, there was no Twitter. There was no Facebook. There was no Instagram. There was black and white television. And somehow I got the message. So, Ibram, as we begin to wrap up, you know, in your book, you write a lot about your own journey in raising your daughter, Imani. She was born in 2016. You talk about your own family's experience with Black maternal health care to Imani's first day of daycare. It's really beautiful the way you weave Mm -hmm. your very personal story here. So what are your hopes, you know, in the moments when you're like, oh, my God, there's so much possibility in our country in those moments, (laughs) in those moments, Ibram. What are your hopes for the next generation of anti-racists, like your daughter, like her peers, like my kids, Julio's kids? Mm. Yeah, what do you, let's, what, what's the dream of vision there? To me, I think, so our generation, particularly, you know, people of color who, as they came of age as adults, were able to begin to really shed many of the ideas or self-hate that they had internalized, mm. you know, as, as children and were able to begin to, to transform themselves as they, you know, transform society. I'm hoping that our kids, that this generation, they don't have to do that. Like they will start, yeah, right, so much earlier and be so much sharper and not have that type of baggage and not have to spend mm. so much time sort of looking in the mirror and seeing the problem. And, you know, I, like my daughter who's six, years old. Now, I mean, like I remember the other day, my wife Sadika was showing her a a graduation ceremony because one of my wife's mentees was graduating from medical school. And my daughter was like, why isn't I don't why aren't there any brown people <laughs> here? We're all the brown people. <laughs> wow. Right. And so, you know, of course some parents would be horrified by that, but I wasn't horrified because I want her to see that that's a problem that needs to be rectified, mm-hmm, right? And and mm-hmm, we can't even mm-hmm, begin mm-hmm, to yeah. rectify racism if we're teaching our kids that it's normal if brown people are not graduating, right, that, it's okay. that it's okay. Mm-hmm. And, and so yeah. that's what I'm hoping for our kids, that they will see these problems and see it much earlier, that no kid of color will look at their skin color and see that there's a problem. No white kid will think that they're special because they're white and begin you know, transforming this world much earlier than we did. 
we're going to move to our final segment and we call it binge worthy or what are you binging on? Because, you know, we want to have a little joy in this. And I, I'm curious fun. as to what you're binging on. Will Ibram reveal <laughs> <Yeah>. the truth? <laughs> We've had some very interesting reveals from people who are like, I watched the Kardashians or I'm a gardener. I, you know, I mean, we've had really interesting reveals. So anything that Good you are book. binging on yeah. that is helping you kind of be in this moment. So what's your binge worthy? So I think the last thing I really binged on was this show on HBO Max called Southside. Huh. Oh, it's it's yeah. this, it's a comedy about these two black guys who work for like a rena furniture sort of place and they're they're just sort of living their lives trying to strive and it's just so funny <laughs> you know there's so many just incredibly funny characters it's set in south side of chicago yeah my hood yeah <laughs> and i don't know i grew up on 90s comedies and it really felt like a throwback you know to a 90s comedy and and so yeah we like this i think there's two seasons we probably went through and binged watched them all in like two okay. weeks. Like we, that's a reveal. Okay, because yeah. I'm like I watched the Chai, yeah. which is all about Southside High Park, all of that. I watched the Chai on Showtime, but I guess I got to go find Southside. Yeah, we're watching Southside. I've seen it in the feed, so just make sure you're not eating because there's gonna be some laugh out loud moments. I don't want you to choke or anything, and then you blame me. So. <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> I'm joking because Ibram Kendi told me to watch this comedy and not. Okay. The disclaimer has been made. Okay. It's all good. It's all good. The fact oh, that yeah. it's like that funny and it's making Ibram laugh, it's like, okay, We're I can't watch this. that. We're watching this, Maria. <laughs> all right. All right. Well, I love that. Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, very serious, genius, renowned, anti racist scholar, and author of the new book, How to Raise an Anti Racist. Thank you so much for being real and for joining Julio and me on this episode of In the Thing. Oh, of course. It's truly an honor. I'm Maria Hinojosa. And I'm Julio Ricardo Varela. Thank you to Sarah Hershander for producing this episode and to Rosana Caban for mixing it. Remember, dear listener, go to Apple Podcasts to rate and review us. And you can listen to In The Thick on all major podcast platforms. Check us out on the web at inthethick.org. Follow us on Twitter and on Instagram at In The Thick Show. Like us on El Facebook and tell your friends. In The Thick is produced by Noor Saudi, Oscar Fernandez, and our New York Women's Foundation Ignite fellow, Daniela Teo Garzon. Our editorial director is Fernanda Santos. Our audio engineering team is Stephanie LeBeau, Julia Caruso, Gabriela Baez, and JJ Carubin. Our marketing manager is Luis Luna. Thanks to Sofia Sanchez for reporting me in our New York studio. The music you heard is courtesy of Nacional Kept and CZK Records. Dear listener, see you in our next episode. Ciao. No te vayas. Yo, happy seven years. The opinions expressed by the guests and contributors in this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Futuro Media or its employees. From P-